0: ponder those things, it will, be, it will bear much fruit in your life. Turn with me to the book of Romans, right after the book of Acts. can't tell you how excited I am to begin this study. Look forward to what God's going to do in me through the study and in you. And um, just hope you see it as I do this. God is inviting us to a theological feast, to a soul feast, to a gospel feast. The table is well set. Many delicacies are on the table. And they are free to us through the truth that we have in Christ. So we'll begin Romans today. We'll only do part of the introduction. Do the first half, you will see that that is full. <laughs> and uh, much more could be said about these things, but He's giving us an introduction. He's inviting us in. He's walking us up onto the porch of what He's going to say. So many of these things we will say much more about as we go through the study. But just a beautiful introduction to the letter and the first half the first seven verses are just, just very rich. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Look in verse 1 of chapter 1. This is God's Word. Let's read together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ, to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. This is your word. We pray that you would take your word and accomplish your purpose. Lord, empower and enable me to preach Your Word. May the truth of Your Word go forth. May Christ be lifted high. May You draw people to Yourself. Lord, excite us for this study. So many riches are before us. So much that we need for the health and thriving of our souls for our growing in grace, for our coming to faith, for our children coming to faith, for You working in and through us for Your glory. So help me to preach Your Word, Lord. And what our appetite's for it. Help us to hear it as the very Word of God. Help us to treasure it, to seek it, to marinate in it, to grow in grace because of it. Lord, plant seeds of the gospel in hearts. Bring souls to faith as we look into Your Word. Nourish souls in grace. May none of us be the same when we leave as when we walked in. So Father, through Your Son, by Your Spirit, apply Your truth and accomplish Your purpose. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. Martin Luther's testimony of salvation, his testimony of finally understanding Romans 1:17. Finally understanding, after tormenting himself, after tormenting his, his fellow monks and his father confessor, because he was so convicted of his sin, he was so aware of how far short he fell for, from the righteousness that God required, he was so wearied of trying to live up to that standard, he said, "Love God, sometimes I hate Him." because he just couldn't measure up. And then he saw in Romans 1:17, the truth of the righteousness of God, gifted through faith, and it changed everything. In Bunyan's picturesque way, the pack fell off. At the cross, he was free. clothed in the righteousness of Christ and cleansed by His blood. Many souls have been converted through reading Romans. Many souls have been set free. Many souls have been grown in grace. It is a very important book. The longest and most systematically reasoned of Paul's letters as he explains the Gospel of God that he has come to know and cherish. Look what else he said. He said this epistle, this letter, this letter of Paul to the Romans, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And watch this. And And is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy Himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Romans is filled with what you need for life and growth and grace in Christ. Augustine was converted through reading Romans. Many, many, many souls down through the history, as I've said. Calvin says this, and I've I've told you this, and this is where I got it. If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. If you understand Romans, you'll understand the Bible and be richly blessed in the process. Today, we begin a glorious journey. A glorious journey into the depths of God's grace the depths of the gospel of God, the depths of His grace in Christ through the book of Romans. And we're going to begin with His salutation or greeting, which is the longest salutation or greeting in any of His letters. A few introductory matters. The, The book was written in A.D. roughly 57, somewhere 54 to 58 but probably around A.D. 57. Think about this. This book was written about about seven years before Nero's great persecution of the Christians in Rome. So one of the things you see God doing to prepare them for that great persecution is really rooting and grounding them in the gospel and in His grace through the book of Romans that Paul would write. It was some 13 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. It was written from Corinth while Paul was on his third missionary journey. So we saw that as we studied Acts. I point you back to, to those sermons. And it was written to the, in, to the churches in Rome. Rome was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was in its heyday when he wrote this letter to the church in Rome. What is the theme of this book? Very simply, the theme is the gospel. The theme is the gospel. Paul lays out the gospel that he preaches, that he got from Christ, that he preaches and that he wants their, them to embrace and be rooted and grounded in. And, and also he, he looks, he's looking forward in mission, hoping to go to Spain and hoping that Rome can, the Christians in Rome can be added to support for his mission to Spain. But he does that by richly laying out the gospel for them. And more matters we'll deal with as we go through the scriptures, but um, go through this book. But today we're going to begin by looking at the first half of his introduction, of his greeting, of his salutation. That's verses 1 to 15. We're going to look at 1 to 7 this morning. And entitled it, The Gospel of God. But here's what I want you to take away. Think about. This should encapsulate the entire outline. Embrace this gospel because it has an unlikely author, an ancient foundation, an undeniable proof, and a glorious purpose. Embrace this gospel, this gospel written in this book of Romans, written by Paul, capturing the true gospel of God going forth to the ends of the earth. So first, embrace this gospel because it has an unlikely author. Before I want to say that, embrace. When I'm using embrace, I'm using to accept something willingly and enthusiastically. To accept it willingly and enthusiastically. Because look first at the unlikely author. Certainly, God's gospel was was unexpected and nobody predicted that God's son would be, or it was predicted in the Old Testament, but most didn't see that he would come as the suffering servant first before he was the conquering king. But he's always doing things that we don't expect. This very first word in this epistle is, is rich, if we think about it. And we get an advantage because we've studied through Acts. So we've seen who this guy was. We've seen who he is. We've seen what God's done in his life. But that very first word, Paul. Who was that? Remember Saul? Remember Saul of Tarsus? Breathing fire and threats. Murdering and seeking to destroy the church. Arresting people. taking them. The persecution was so bad that it scattered the church. Good thing is the gospel scattered with the church. But Saul, now Paul. I mean, think about that. In our day, maybe take a guy like Osama bin Laden. And now, this didn't happen in his life. He received justice instead of mercy. But imagine if Osama bin Laden, with all of his hatred of of the West and of the gospel and of the church and of, you know, you name it, Imagine if we got word that he had come to faith in Jesus. And now the faith that he was once trying to destroy, he was proclaiming and preaching. Maybe even from a jail somewhere, which we know Paul did. That would be pretty amazing, right? It's that kind of enemy, that kind of hatred of the truth that Saul is now Paul. Now watch what he says about himself. Saul... For Paul formerly saw, enemy of the church, now look what he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. Probably better, a slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. Don't get your justice warrior's burrs all cockled over that. Go read Exodus. You'll see that the kind of slavery that happened in America was always outlawed by the Word of God, and stealing people and selling them deserved the death penalty. So don't. But there were other forms of slavery, but that pictured something here. Paul says, I was I am a slave or a servant or a bond servant of Christ. What does he mean? He belongs to Christ. And he belongs to Christ willfully and joyfully. Think about the Old Testament picture of a slave. Uh, you couldn't, the, a slave couldn't serve more than seven years and serve for six years and go free in the seventh. But if that slave loved its master and, and, and delighted in his master and wanted to stay, then they would back him up to the door and pierce his ear as a sign that he wanted to become a permanent Servant to this good and loving master. And he wanted to stay because of his love and devotion. And that ear piercing would signify that bond servant. Paul is now that kind. He's a humble, devoted servant of the Christ he once hated and wanted to destroy. And he calls himself a slave. And that picture in the Old Testament of being pierced as a willing slave. We know that our Savior became, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. He was pierced for our transgressions and now calls us to belong to Him. So Paul says, this is who I am. This is what I am by God's grace. I am a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. And He didn't just save me. The archenemy of the church, God didn't just save, but he, he, he made Him an apostle. A sent one. A sent one of Jesus Christ. This is one of the twelve. They were, they were, many, uh, they were sent ones of the church, and you see Barnabas and others in, in the New Testament. We saw that in our study of the book of Acts. Think small, a apostle, although that wasn't, it just helps us delaying it. There were servants, there were sent ones of the church, apostles of the church, and they were apostles of Jesus Christ. And there were 12 of those, and Judas betrayed him, and, and one replaced with Matthias, and then you have Paul coming along as an apostle. And so, but he says, I am called to be... An apostle. Christ didn't just knock me off my high horse or mule and save me on the road to Damascus, and that was the extent of it. But in His will for me, He had called me to be an apostle. One of the twelve especially called out and sent out by Christ to witness His resurrection, to deliver His Word, to establish His church. Amazing grace, Right? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I relate to that. I certainly didn't deserve that. John Newton relates to that. But the enemy of the church saved by grace and made an apostle had to have seen Christ and seen Christ resurrected. And we know that happened. We saw that. Go back and read Acts, read Romans 9, I mean Acts 9. Listen to those messages. But Paul is a slave of Christ. He's called to be an apostle. And he says something else about himself here. That he was set apart for the gospel of Peter. He was set apart for the gospel of God. Separated to the gospel. Taken out of one group and he's, he's set aside, he's sanctified, he's, he's repurposed, he's, he's set apart for the gospel, separated from the go- for the gospel. When did that happen? It's an interesting question. Look at what, Gal- what he says to the Galatian church in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart, same language, he who had set me apart before I was born, You mean God had all of this mapped out before He was born? See, I might as well go ahead and get the sovereignty thing going. Get the election thing going. Get the chosen thing going. Because it's all through the book of Romans. But look at what Paul says. He set me apart before I was born. Think of, if you go read Jeremiah in the first chapter of Jeremiah, and God said before he knit him together in the womb. Does God knit? Yes, He does, in the womb. He's, God says before I knit you together in the womb, I knew you and set you apart basically as a prophet. Look how much time it, came for that, for that it took for that to take place. A lot of mystery there, right? And, and Saul, thinking he was doing exactly the right thing. He's raised up as a Jew. He was circumcised the eighth day. He's the tribe of Benjamin. He's got all of the pedigree. He's trained by the, the, the greatest rabbis. And, and so he's, he's, he's committed. He's devoted. And he's vicious against error. And he thinks the church is in error. And he finds out different. And that once he comes to faith and comes to submit to this call, he realizes God had set him apart for this mission. He he now treasures the grace that is his in Christ and he understands grace for the first time coming to faith. And now all of the Old Testament scriptures that he was just steeped in suddenly come alive with Christ at the center. And he says, I was set apart For the gospel of God, I was set apart before I was born. It didn't depend on what Paul had done to earn his way into being an apostle. Listen, you can't read the gospels and think that. The the group of men that Christ chose were not the greatest pedigree. They were not the smartest. They were not the, you fill in the blank but they were the ones He chose and equipped and used to transform the world. And one of them had been the archenemy of the church. And Paul says later that God had mercy on Him, the chief of sinners, that the rest of us might have hope. So I don't care what you've done. You are not beyond the grace of God. And I don't care how good you've been. You're not beyond your need of the grace of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely as a gift. We'll see that as we move on. But he he says this at the end of that little little verse there in verse 1. He set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel that is God's gospel. The gospel that comes from God. The one He is the source of. Gospel meaning good news. Good news about what? Well, secondly, embrace this gospel because it has an ancient foundation. Look what he says in verse 2. I've been set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See, this gospel is not something new. It's not something the apostles made up. It's not a plan B. It's not something different. It's not a novelty. It was promised before in the Holy Scriptures. It has an ancient foundation being promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is Christ. The gospel is Christ. I mean, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel he preached, the gospel which they believed, the gospel they were saved, and they were standing on, standing in in God's grace. It was Christ. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was raised. That's the gospel. And Christ is the focus of the scriptures from Genesis to maps. Beginning in the very early portion of Genesis. And we even know John, when John begins his gospel, he places Jesus there at the very beginning as the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. Nothing came into being except through Him. He's already there from Genesis 1. -1. But then explicitly the first gospel is in Genesis 3.15. The coming seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we move on from Adam and, and we go down through and, and we see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel and, 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 and Moses and the law and the prophets and the sacrifices and all of that prophetically pointing forward to Christ, picturing Him, predicting Him. Isaiah 53, Psalms that we read, like one of the ones Corey read this morning, all pointing forward to... Jesus, all of Scripture is about Him. This Gospel is the fruition of everything that's been pictured and prophesied and predicted in the Old Covenant. It is God's Gospel. It is the one that He put together before there was a creation. In eternity past, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted for redemption to save a people given to the Son called by the Spirit, and yes, chosen by the Father. But all of those Scriptures were about Jesus, and don't you wish you were walking on the road to Emmaus that day when He explained that to them? Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is before He had revealed to them who He was, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. In most of the Scriptures. In some of the Scriptures. No. In all of the Scriptures. The things concerning Himself. This is not a novelty. It was promised beforehand through the Holy Scriptures and and, and the prophets giving witness to the Gospel of God. What do you mean? Look in verse 3. Concerning His Son. Concerning His Son. The good news concerning His Son. The Gospel about Jesus. Now, I've already said that. The good news is about Jesus, not you. You are not the good news. Your grandkids are not the good news. As precious and cute and sweet they are, as they are, they come into this world, as Voddie said, vipers and diapers. The gospel is Jesus, not you. The gospel is what He has done to reconcile us to God, not what we do to reconcile ourselves to God. The gospel is Christ born, living, dying, buried, raised, reigning, coming again. That He died for our sins. God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, not themselves shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came at just the right time, Galatians 4.4. 4. He was born in a humble estate. He was born under His own law. He was God and man, truly, in one person, two natures, one person forever. He lived in fulfillment of His law. He kept the law in thought, word, and deed, providing a righteous standing that He didn't need. But the law was fulfilled so that then He took our sin, our guilt upon Himself and died on that cross and paid the penalty for our sin. The soul that sins shall die, Scripture says. The wages of sin is death. And listen, that's not just physical death. And the suffering that He suffered wasn't just physical suffering. In fact, the physical suffering, as horrible as it was, paled in comparison to the spiritual suffering that He sweat blood about the night before knowing that He would suffer the wrath due every one of His people and that He would drink that cup dry, being the God-man, that He would drink that cup of wrath dry on that cross so that He could say before He gave up His Spirit, it is finished, to tell us died, paid in full. Christ died for our sins. He paid our penalty He went through death for us and He came out the other side raised for our justification. So that we, like Martin Luther, can see the beauty of the gospel that righteousness is ours as a free gift because our Savior lived for us, died for us, was raised for us, and is reigning for us. Is coming again someday. See, the true gospel is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing of me. I was the problem, not the cure. But I cling to the cross. I cling to my Savior. I cling to Christ who died to pay the penalty for my sins and who was raised, proving it all true. So the gospel is concerning the Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Notice that little saying there according to the flesh. Isn't that implying that He's much more than that? That He would even say that? He was born, He was descended from David according to the flesh. He was the Son of David that everybody was looking for, which meant the Messiah. He was the one who was to come. He didn't come the way they expected, most of them, but He was the Son of David who had come first to pay the penalty for His people's sins, Isaiah 53 before he comes as a conquering king. See, he fulfills that great promise to David that Corey brought out before he read the psalm. The reason I picked that psalm is it shows that Davidic covenant, that promise to David, that he would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. That's in 2 Samuel 7. If you want to go read about that. That his son would be on the throne, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the true and greater son of David, fulfilling all those promises, fulfilling every promise of the Old Covenant, including that one. He's the true and greater and son of David, the true and greater Israel, the true and greater Adam, the true... He's the Messiah, according to his flesh, descended from David. So embrace this gospel because it has an ancient foundation. An unlikely person to write about it, 1st section, Paul. It has an ancient foundation though, all of the Old Covenant Scriptures. Thirdly, embrace this gospel because it has an undeniable proof. Look at verse 4. Concerning His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God. Was appointed, was shown... By the resurrection. Some say appointed. Doesn't mean He took none of the adoptionistic Christianity. He was the Son of God. He was pre-existent, as John shows. He took our sin. He took on a human nature. He came to save us. He was the Son of David. But yes, He died. But we have an undeniable proof. Look at this. In verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The Son of God. Jesus, God's true Son, true Israel, the true King, died and was placed in a grave. But He didn't stay there. And the proof... Of everything I'm telling you this morning, the proof given is His resurrection. The fact that He blew the doors off the tomb, not to get out, but to show that He was out. That His angels said there, the one you're seeking is not here, He is risen. The soldiers cowered. I mean, warriors cowered and fled. And silly excuses were made up by the Jews. This miserable, trembling, scared, ragtag group of disciples came and overpowered that Roman cohort and took his body out. That's dumb. That's just dumb. Or that he didn't really die, he just swooned. And the executioners didn't know it. And when they stuck a spear in his heart and water and blood came out, you see what I'm saying? It's dumb. It's just dumb. It, it shows that He really raised from the dead because of the silly excuses people try to come up with. Many have come to faith in Jesus trying to disprove the resurrection. You know why? You can't. Well, And, and some people say silly things. Well, I won't believe anything I can't prove scientifically. You can't prove what you ate for lunch yesterday scientifically. You can't. Historical witness is the undeniable proof of the resurrection of Christ. In order to prove something scientifically, you have to recreate it and observe it and watch it and confirm the results. You can't do that with history. That's not how it works. That's a dumb thing to say. Don't say that. You believe all sorts of stuff you can't prove scientifically. Moving on. Look at Acts 17, 30, and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He... Now watch this. He's not playing. He doesn't suggest. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Who is that? And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He appeared to all of the apostles who were not looking for him. Didn't believe the ladies when they said he'd been risen. Scared to death when he appeared. And Thomas wasn't there with him and he said, I'll never believe until I can put my fingers in the... And no proof he went through with that miserable experiment, by the way, when Christ appeared. He said, my Lord and my God. Appeared to over 500 people at one time. Better proof that Christ was raised from the dead than there was Caesar, was was Caesar, Julius Caesar. There's so much proof in comparison to all the other things. But I don't have time. To, I don't need to go into that. We have a God-verified gospel and you deny it at your own peril. You will stand before this Jesus one day and you won't be able to say, I didn't know. But don't do that. Do what God commands. Repent. Turn, change your mind. Change your heart. I know you can't do that. Cry out to God. If you think the gospel's foolishness, that's exactly what God said you would think, read 1 Corinthians. That's not good news for you. It's bad news. Cry out to Him to change your heart because He's given an undeniable proof and He's not going to give any more aside from the fact that in creation there's proof that holds everybody without excuse that there is a God and that He's powerful. He's He's given more by raising His Son from the dead. We have a God-verified gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He was raised the third day. He's the Son of David. He was declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of power. Holy Spirit raising Him from the dead. Listen to Peter as Peter preaches. It's not just Paul. In Acts 10, 36-43, I'm just going to read this because we saw it when we studied Acts together. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. I don't know how they ate anything with their jaws hanging open in amazement. He appeared to over 500 people at one time, it says in Corinthians. He commanded us to preach to the people then to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To Him, now here's getting back to our verses, not just Paul that's showing this. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Believe this gospel, embrace this gospel because we have an undeniable proof. And lastly, embrace this gospel because it has a glorious purpose. Look at what it says about Jesus Christ and and, and going on in verse 5. Paul loves these long sentences. Have you ever noticed that? Loves long, theologically rich sentences. Through whom we have received, we, he's lumping himself in with the rest of the apostles there. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for his sake, for the sake of his name, among all the nations. The purpose of this gospel is redemption and reconciliation. It's forgiveness, yes. It's cleansing from sin, yes. It's clothing with His righteousness, yes. But it's also a new heart. A circumcised heart. What separated man from God in the garden? Distrust, lack of love, unbelief resulting in disobedience. Disobedience to God is sin. A failure to love Him. Jesus came to destroy all of the works of the devil. Sin and its misery. He came not just to justify us, but to sanctify us. See, these are all words we're going to unfold as we study this book. He came to produce in us a living faith that produces good works. Growing, What is that? Growing joyful obedience to God according to His Word. It's what Paul calls here the obedience of faith. I think the NIV gets it right when it says, it translates this, the obedience that comes from faith. And just like a little child is born and you parent them well and they grow and they manifest that. You know, they're sinners and you're faithful to share the gospel with them. But as you grow and discipline them, they grow in obedience. And hopefully it's out of love for you. I know I'm being idealistic here. Um, but growing in grace is growing in obedience to Jesus. Joyful obedience. The kind of obedience Paul is talking about, being his servant, his slave. The obedience that comes from faith. You want to know what this book is about? That's the bookends of the book. That phrase right there bookends this book. And you'll see it when I read in a minute. But that the obedience of faith is found here in chapter 1, verse 5 at the very end in chapter 16, verse 26. Those are the brackets. That's what God is up to. That's what the Gospel produces as it is understood and applied. In the Holy Spirit giving us new hearts that trust in Jesus. New hearts evidence themselves in a new walk. Grace produces love for God, gratitude to God, trust in God because of His grace. And then it produces a growing in keeping His Word. Look what Paul says, for the sake of His name among all the nations. Not just among the Jews. Not just a Jew thing, but it's a world thing. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be around His throne enjoying Him, glorifying Him, willfully obeying Him. In chapter 15, Paul says this, and we'll see it when we get there. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Now watch. What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. That's what the true grace of God does in the hearts and lives of His people. Brings them to obedience in word and deed. Because when we have a new heart, when we have a Psalm 119 heart, we grieve over our sin. We want to be free from our sin. We embrace God's grace and we trust in Him and we feed upon His Word and the Spirit empowers that to make us more and more and more like Jesus. If you don't want to obey Jesus, you don't know His grace. If you have no evidence of... Obedience by word and deed in your life. You need to seek Him because the soul He justifies, He also sanctifies. James said it was a dead faith that didn't produce good works. But the fruit of a living faith is good works. Not perfection. When we're glorified, we'll be perfect. Don't look for perfection. Look for growth. Growth to be more and more like Jesus he says, we've received grace and apostleship to just bring people to pray a prayer after us. And we'll assure them that they're saved and tell them to never doubt it. That's nowhere in the Bible. Y'all know that, right? The whole altar call thing and sinner's prayer thing, you cannot find that in the Bible. John Finney made that up. But we do call you like God does. God commands you. We call you. We urge you. We plead with you to repent, to turn towards God and receive Jesus as your Savior. Because look what it says. It goes on to say, and again, a lot of these things we're going to expand upon as we go through the book. But in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus. Did you know if God calls you, He calls you to belong to Jesus? He calls you to be one of those willing servants who take the punch? Why? Because you love Him. Grace makes us love Jesus. We see what we deserve. We see Him taking what we deserve on the cross. We see Him raising from the grave and promising us a free gift salvation. We can know that we're forgiven, justified, have hope all the way into eternity all because of Christ who is the Gospel that produces love in our hearts and gratitude to Christ, a devotion to Christ that makes us want to serve Him. We don't want to be apart from Him. Yes, pierce my ear. Please. If you're called to Jesus, look at verse 6. You're called to belong to Christ. It's not another step in discipleship. You accept Him as Savior first and then someday when you think it's worth it, you accept Him as Lord. No, He doesn't cut Himself up that way. He calls us, just like Paul, to be a lost, But a joyful lost, A joyful servant. A joyful slave. Because of His grace. Like Isaiah... Oh, here I am. Send me. When He was cleansed. See, I'll have Jesus as a ticket to heaven, but I won't have Him ruling over my life. That is not salvation. That's just sin and religious stress. He says... Including you, the people I'm writing to, and we know this is the Word of God, so through them to us, we're called to belong to Jesus. To no longer live for ourselves, he says in 2 Corinthians, but for Him who died and was raised from the grave. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning? Are you seeking to live for Jesus? What does that mean? You're seeking by his, because you love Him to have His Word shape your life. If you're not, you don't know Him. I, I'm not, I don't want to be judgmental. I'm not being. I'm just saying what the Word of God teaches. This cheap grace that is preached by so many people, people with a lot of people on TV and all of that kind of stuff, it's just that cheap imitation. The real gospel calls us to belong to Jesus. Look what he says in verse 7. To all who are, in, who are loved by God, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, when? Before the foundation of the world. And called, my translation says, called to be saints. Just so y'all know, to be is not in the original. It's called saints in the original. See, we're not a saint because we did a lot of spectacular works and had miracles happen in our lives. We're a saint because we have faith in Jesus. He calls His people saints. And He tells the Roman Christians they are saints if they're trusting in Christ, if they belong to Him. And that's because they're loved by God and He's applied the Gospel to their lives. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called saints, grace to you. That's God's attitude towards you. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning? Then God speaks grace to you, grace over you. What is the benediction every Sunday? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you or something similar. Grace to you. Through the gospel, which is Christ. Grace. Not condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because He took it. Grace. And this book is going to root us deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into that grace which is ours. So that we can stand in it, chapter 5. And walk in it. Be satisfied in it. Look what else he says. Grace and peace. Peace with God. That the better we embrace and grasp, we experience the peace of God as we walk in Christ. There is no peace for the wicked. You heard that in the Word. Sometimes the wicked, have, they have a good feeling about the way they're living. Don't, I'm not saying everybody's miserable. but There's no peace with God if we're not in Christ Jesus and therefore there's no true the peace of God. There's just whistling in the darkness without it. It'll all be okay. Grace to you. Man, we're going to mire up in that because we're going to mire up in the gospel of God. And peace to you. Shalom. You've heard that word, right? Shalom. Because we're saints. And because it comes to us through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No focus on status. It's focus on status, not behavior. His people. Just like He said to Jeremiah, just like He did with Paul, I called you before you were born. I set you apart. Paul was called, God working His power in him to bring him to faith, to bring him into apostleship, to use him for his glory. And he calls us effectively, we'll talk about that effectual call as we move on through the book, to faith in Jesus, to be His children, to be saints that live in grace, that walk in peace. And the more of this book that dwells in our heart, the more that's going to be true of us. Let me just give you a few points right quick and ask for your embracing of what we're doing in the book of Romans, and then I'll be done. Embrace this gospel by praying for this study. Invest in it. Pray for me as I preach. Pray for Corey as he preaches. Pray for yourself before you come in and after you come in. God, take this truth and shape me. Root me and ground me in Your grace in Christ Jesus so that I'm confident of the peace with You and that in the midst of the trials of my life, I can walk in the peace that this gives me. Pray. Embrace this gospel by praying, please. Secondly, embrace this gospel by diligently engaging in the study. Listen, we got a bad habit in the church these days. We come through that door, we hear something, We don't even talk about it when it's over and we forget it by the time we walk out that door. This is a stewardship. God is entrusting the preaching of His truth that you will take it and invest in it and talk about it and review it and come back with questions if you have them. There's no way for me to unscrew the top of your head, open it up and just pour this in there and screw the top of your head back on. I wouldn't want to do that if I could. I was in EMT training, medical training, until we got to the blood stuff. And that's when I realized that wasn't my call. I was like, you're going to need a doctor. Uh, (laughs) And it's not me. Diligently engage in the study. Review it. Discuss it. Share it. Thirdly, embrace the study by prioritizing it. And I know that's related. But what I'm talking about, if at all possible, be here. I'm going to step on into something right now. Sports are not more important than worship on the Lord's Day. Your vacation is not more important than worship on the Lord's Day. If you're off somewhere... um, On vacation, you should be finding a church to attend that is sound that you're going to hear the Word. Nothing is more important than worship of the Lord on His day. Now, I know, I'm not saying some of you are doctors and nurses and various things. Sometimes you have to work, and there are things that you have to do, needs of necessity and mercy. But we've gotten astray in the church from worship on the Lord's day. So recommit, reinvest to attendance and sacrifice. And kids, if there's some things you can't do because they're done on the Lord's day, just love God and adore Him and, and that's a sacrifice you're making. You know, the has taken over the Lord's day and we, we have to push back against that. Fourthly, embrace this gospel by accepting what this book teaches. And I'm challenging you right now, this book's going to come against you in some places. Because we're going to talk about those big words like predestination, and the Presbyterians didn't make those up. They're in the Bible. Justification, sanctification, predestination, election. We're going to get there. It's going to be a while, but we'll get there. But I'm just telling you now, go ahead and go before God and tell Him, whatever your word says, I'm going to believe. Whether it makes sense to me or not, whether I like it or not. Just make me like it. Don't, please don't, Lord, please help me not to try to explain away Your Word and not embrace it. Because it's here for a purpose and we need it for our peace and it's the truth of the living God. Some of the subjects will be challenging. So talk with Him about that ahead of time. Last thing I'm going to say, is I'm going to speak to those who don't believe and those who do. If you don't believe, embrace this Gospel by coming to repentance and faith in Jesus turning and trusting in Him. And if you do know Him, embrace this gospel by growing in repentance and faith in Jesus as we study. Commit to this study. Seek God in this study. And listen, expect big things from this study. This will be mightily productive in your heart and life if you really get a good grasp on what Romans teaches. And I don't know what's coming in our culture, I mean, I look around and and, and I see things happening. But God prepared His church in Rome for persecution by marrying them up in God's grace. And apart from a great change, a lot of that's coming our way, and He'll prepare us for it by marrying us up in His grace. I pray for revival. I pray that none of that ever happens. But the cultural indicators are not in that direction without a revival. Here's what we need. To not just make it, but to thrive in His grace and to stand for His glory and to be the light and salt we're to be in this dark world. My prayer is that we will all be able to say in some way that this book has brought us to enter into paradise through open gates. Let's study that word together. I'm going to read the the last part of this book to you. I'm going to read the last few verses and then I'm going to quit. But look at this in Romans 16, 25 to 27, how it concludes. And you see that obedience to faith, you'll see that book in. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. How does he strengthen us? Gospel, preaching Jesus. What we're going to do in Romans now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> to live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful epistle. Thank you for all of the great truths that are in it that we will study. Excite us about it. Motivate us about it. May it be because of love for you, because of your grace, that we dive headfirst into your word. Miring up in your grace. Walking in a consciousness of peace with You and then experience the peace that You give even in the midst of great trials because Your Word is filling our heart and focusing our hearts on Christ. And it's in Him that we live and trust and have joy and purpose and look through this life to the life to come. Help us to be light and salt. Grow us as witnesses as we study Romans that we will share the great truths of Your grace with those around us. Grow us as prayer warriors as we study Romans. Grow us as children of God, those who belong to Jesus, willing slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great King, the Son of David, the Son of God, the One who has lived for us died for us, and been raised for us, is reigning for us, and is coming back for us someday. Lord, any who are in here or watching over the live stream or listening over a recording, any who don't know you, I pray that you would be planting seeds in their heart, that you would be bringing them to to life through your truth, regeneration, that they would come to repent and trust in Christ. And those of us who know you, may it fuel our life of repentance and faith, trusting you and loving you and living for you in the midst of a crooked and dark generation. Save souls, sanctify souls, comfort Christians, clarify theological confusion, humble the proud, strengthen the weak, do what you would do, that we might have Jesus as our Savior and might be conformed into His image. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen.